This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. The Israeli chief rabbinate has become a lightning rod for criticism. Whether it's in the realms of marriage, divorce, conversion, or kashrut, it seems to be the governmental body that people love to hate. And frankly, there are some good reasons for questioning a lot of what the chief rabbinate has done. That leads to the question of whether it should be reformed or discarded altogether. Rabbi Seth Farber, an Orthodox rabbi, historian, and social activist, and the founder of Etim, believes that the former option is the way to go. In a wide-ranging interview, we discuss the problems that currently exist and his work with Etim towards creating solutions. We also talked about his well-received article, Fighting for Judaism in the Jewish State, subtitled, I'm an Orthodox Rabbi, Dedicating My Life to Breaking the Ultra-Orthodox Monopoly Over Jewish Life in Israel, published on August 1st in the New York Times. Rabbi Farber and I discuss the article, as well as an important criticism leveled against it. Namely, that it's one thing to air our dirty laundry among the Jewish community. But is it right to talk about it in so public a forum, read by millions of people around the world who are not affected by the rabbinate in Israel? Or in different terms, while hiding our problems is, I believe, untenable, is airing them in one of the most read newspapers in the world going to hurt more than it will help? Rabbi Seth Farber was ordained by Yeshiva University and received the PhD in Jewish history from Hebrew University. In 2002, Rabbi Farber founded ITIM, the leading advocacy organization working to build a Jewish and democratic Israel in which all Jews can lead full Jewish lives. ITIM operates a free assistance center that helps nearly 5,000 people each year participate in central features of Jewish life, such as gaining official recognition as Jews, marrying as Jews, and converting to Judaism. ITIM also runs an advocacy center that improves government policies and procedures related to fundamental matters of Jewish life, as well as Giyor Kalacha, Israel's largest non-governmental conversion program. Thank you very much for being with me today on the Orthodox Conundrum. My pleasure. First of all, before we get into what you're doing now in particular, how did you start getting involved in the issues that ITIM addresses? I made Aliyah, moved to Israel in the mid-90s, and... Once I finished school and started launching my career as a rabbi, I walked into the local religious council here in Jerusalem and I said, hey, I want to be recognized as a rabbi. I want to be licensed to perform weddings, etc. And at first I was met with somewhat of a cold stare, but eventually after a number of meetings, etc., I became licensed to perform weddings. I was officially a member of the rabbinate and still am proudly. I became that at, you know, 2001 or two, I guess. And then I began performing weddings in Israel. And I had an intuitive sense, I would say, that there was a huge gap between what the Jewish lives people wanted to lead and the types of Jewish services, religious services that were being provided by the state of Israel. That was subsequently confirmed by all sorts of studies and surveys, etc., that were performed by all sorts of groups. Uh, what, what do you mean by a huge Yediyot gap? Achornot. Like what so, kind of gap between what and what? Yediyot Achornot ran a study of 11th graders, and they asked them which government organizations they believe in and which ones they don't. And 87% of 11th graders said they don't trust the religious establishment in Israel. 80% still today of Jewish Israelis say they don't trust the religious establishment. 80%. And yet, when you ask Jewish Israelis if they want to get married with a rabbi, so 78% of them say it's important or very important for them to be married with a rabbi, 91% say it's important for them to say Kaddish for a parent. People want to live Jewish lives. Jewish people want to live Jewish lives in this country. They want to be connected 
to the traditions of their ancestors and their parents. That's exactly the gap that a team fills. We, we try to make, when we originally started, we just tried to make Jewish life accessible in this country. We wanted to make people feel that they didn't have to feel disenfranchised or trampled upon in order to live the Jewish life they wanted to lead. In what sense do they feel they're being trampled upon? Meaning, what about the current status of the rabbinate or Orthodox political parties? I don't know what they're referring to by when they say the political, the uh, excuse me, the religious establishment. That's a very big thing. But what parts of it, in particular, are painful to regular Israelis? Look, when when someone waits on a line for a passport here, they get angry at the Misrat Apneim at the Interior Ministry. When they wait on line, you know, they have to take twenty four lessons for a driving test, and they say this is totally silly just to get a driver's license. They get angry at the Ministry of Transportation. When they have to go through the same type of bureaucracy, sometimes, which is which asks particularly poignant questions about their personal lives, when it comes to Jewish life, and they begin to resent Jewish life in this country, and not just the clerks that they're, that they're meeting. The clerks represent Jewish life. That's not a healthy thing for a Jewish society. It's not a healthy thing for a Jewish state. We've dreamed about this Jewish state. And by the way, I would say, I'll say at the outset, of our discussion that I really feel that this country is beginning to work this out. We haven't ever had this kind of autonomy. We're beginning, only beginning to understand what, what its implications are. Mm-hmm. People feel that their Jewish lives are being trampled upon by a bunch of clerks who are asking them all sorts of personal questions about their personal lives instead of saying, just, I want to just live a Jewish life. Let me get married or let me get buried or let me get divorced in a way that just is simple and straightforward and doesn't require me to sacrifice my personal identity. But in that case, doesn't that mean that the problems inherent in the rabbinate are more a function of all government bureaucracy rather than some sort of misinterpretation of Judaism? Is that what you mean? Well, it's, it's, it's both. It's both. In other words, people don't understand the particular many members, not, not all, I don't want to overgeneralize, because... There are many members of the religious establishment who are incredibly sensitive and incredibly good, you know, well-minded and interested in helping people. But there are some who give the whole thing a bad name, who, who don't understand that in today's modern society, part of the halachic process is to make people feel good about this mm-hmm. and not make, make people feel like they're not a relevant factor. I'll give you an example. When we began some of the activities we do in the burial services department we met with probably 15 or 16 of the largest Hever Kaddishas, the burial societies in this country and one after the other we were told our client is not the family our client is the body and uh, if you can forgive the graphic uh, use of this but we were told by Mohalim the same thing mm-hmm. we don't care what the family thinks our goal is to simply go through the act of a Brit Milah that is not, that might be technically one version of Judaism. It's not my version of Judaism, but maybe some people would say, as a legal phenomenon, in the end, it's only important that the body get buried. Who cares what the family thinks? But I think in a modern Jewish state, when someone who, as someone who cares deeply about the Zionist enterprise and someone who sees that having religious significance, I believe strongly that taking care of families, making people feel good about their Jewish lives, making people feel connected to Jewish tradition is part of the halachic process. And you don't have to sacrifice or compromise at all on halachic standards to be able to do that. Well, in that case, how is it that it happened in the first place? In other words, if 
giving a more personal version of Judaism, I'll call it that for lack of a better term right now, doesn't require compromise. User-friendly, right. I like that. A user-friendly Judaism without compromising on halacha, how is it, in your opinion, that the rabbinate developed in this direction where that seems to be taboo? Because there, again, I don't want to talk about all the rabbinate, right. but right. a lot of the religious establishment in Israel see has a fundamentally ideological approach that is the op, the polar opposite of mine. They believe, as an ideology, that the best way to protect the hardcore of Judaism is to put walls up, is to not allow people to permeate their particularistic, isolationist, orthodox view. Mm-hmm. So because of that, they say, you have to do it in our particularistic way. In any other way, any other possible way is not, they, they use the word halacha for that. Right? Many of your listeners know that uh, when you come to Jerusalem, there are certain burial practices that are known as minhag Yerushalayim, or the custom of Jerusalem. Right. What they're less aware of is that there's at least, from my familiarity with it, at least six different minhag Yerushalayim. But when someone comes along and says, this is Minag Yerushalayim, people say that has authority. That has to be the only way to do it in Jerusalem. They don't even understand that people are using that term or distorting that term to give themselves authority. And they do the same with halacha. So people say the halacha says this. And then people say, well, if the halacha says that, of course, that has to be the case. The halacha doesn't say we have to trample on people's uh, values. The halacha doesn't say we have to dismiss people out of hand if they don't necessarily respect our values as an Orthodox rabbi, I know there are multiple Orthodox halakhic approaches to all sorts of different topics. It doesn't mean that just because someone claims they're speaking in the name of halakha, that that's the only way to do things. Rabbi Farber, what is ETIM, your organization, doing to counteract some of these tendencies? So look, we have three departments that uh, exist at ETIM. The first department simply helps people navigate the existing system. We get more than 5,000 calls a year from people, uh, most of whom are Israeli citizens, who are struggling to navigate the religious establishment as it is today. We take people and accompany them to rabbinical courts and to marriage registration. We intervene on their behalf with burial societies. We take families down to uh, conversion courts. Those are the areas that are, are strong, our forte, our strong suit, if you will, and We simply help thousands and thousands of people live Jewish lives in a way that is both respectful to them and responsive to them and also meets the thresholds of the rabbinate. A second department we have is a systemic change department. It's an advocacy center that essentially takes or crystallizes the difficult cases that we receive in the assistance center and turns them into models of systemic change. And there we use legislation and litigation Uh, We've been in the rabbinical courts and in the civil courts and in the Supreme Court in Israel, where we're trying to get the government to recognize and the rabbinate to recognize that its policies are not halachic in many cases. And even if they are halachic, they're alternative halachic ways to do things, Mm -hmm. which would enable more and more people to live Jewish lives in Israel. So that's a second department. We've had incredible success. I'll give you an example of an area where we've had success. It's a little sensitive. But it's an area where things have literally changed from our work for the long term. Um, Many of your listeners are familiar with the Jewish tradition. It wasn't only a Jewish tradition, but of course a Jewish tradition that families who undergo a tragedy and lose a child in infancy under 30 days, those children are not buried in 
in the same way that an adult would be buried. And generally, in Jewish tradition, parents were discouraged from attending the funeral or knowing where the child was buried, uh, if a child died under 30 days. Now, that worked in, and I understand that tradition, and again, Jewish tradition manifests itself in the sanctity of life, and because of that, families were encouraged to, so to speak, move on. Without getting into the psychological issues of this, what I can say is that in modern Israeli society, where the overwhelming majority of Jews are not orthodox, even though they want to observe the commandments and the traditions, it's simply a disservice to Jewish tradition to tell families, no, you can't go to your child's burial, or no, you can't know where your child is buried. And even if every one of our, the people listening now knows someone who this happened to, it's hard to imagine what this means on a national level, because it happens in this country, according to the statistics, we have 1,100 times a year that a family loses a child in infancy. Mm-hmm. So we went to the Ministry of Interior, uh, to the Ministry of, excuse me, of Justice, and we went to the rabbinate, the religious establishment, the Minister of Religious Affairs, and the Ministry of Health, and we said, we want you to understand the types of calls we're getting at ET. We want you to know that there's people out there, families, who resent Jewish tradition and resent the Jewish state of Israel, including members of Knesset, by the way. Who, lo- who lost children in terrible tragedies, who are feeling incredibly resentful because we aren't coming up with an alternative way to do this. At the beginning, we received the response, well, look, that's the minog, and that's just the way it's going to be. And working together, again, very quietly, with Hever Kadishas and with the Ministry of Religious Affairs, and with the Chief Rabbis, and with the Minister of Justice, and with the Minister of Health, we changed the way things work in this country so that today... If, if four years ago, families had no option of knowing where their child was buried, and again, it happened to thousands of families, right? Probably to more than 10,000 families that had no idea where their children were buried. Today, the threshold is not 30 days after birth, but 20 weeks after conception. That's the protocols of the state of Israel. The protocols of the state of Israel say if someone's in a hospital and they lose a child, within even a miscarriage after 20 weeks, the family is given an option. They're told, Jewish tradition for many, many years said that you don't have to go. But if you want to go, or if you want to know where your child is buried, if you want to put up a matzeva, you can. And we've changed the experience in the, in the most sensitive area for so many families. We've changed it from an experience that empowers them, that gives them choices, that enables them. And again, with rabbinic supervision, if you will, or a, a, a approval, if you will, the Hebrew Kedishas are now part of this system. The Ministry of Religious Affairs is part of this system. We've done a similar thing in the area of mikvaot, we've done a similar thing in the area of marriages, and in Eidud, and we're working on other areas right now. What you're doing sounds really tremendous, and obviously that's a very, very important thing, as you say, especially nowadays with uh, the psychological realities that people face when they, God forbid, lose a child uh, even under the age of 30 days. And uh, Some people say psychologically it's, it's, it's bad for them to go, I don't know, I'm not a psychologist. What I would say is that people should have the choice. They should be able to decide, especially because Jewish tradition enables them to do this. There's no reason that the government of Israel shouldn't be able to uh, shouldn't be able to allow them to do it. If there is one stream of Jewish tradition within the Orthodox community that allows it, so we should do that. We should pursue all those options. But Rabbi Farber, there's some things that are not necessarily what we normally call within the bounds of traditional halacha, although you might tell me that I'm wrong about that, but let me just place the problem like this and state it as follows. You're discussing doing things completely within the normal 
bounds of what we call normative orthodox halacha. But you wrote an article recently for the New York Times, an op-ed piece that uh, was well-received and noted widely. And in there, you talked about the case of the conservative rabbi who was in Israel and was arrested for performing weddings outside of the rubric of the chief rabbinate. And obviously, you are an Orthodox rabbi, but you were defending him. How far would you go in terms of trying to allow for what we might call non-Orthodox halachic practices being accepted in Israel? That's a very different type of area. Does the team support that as well? So that's a great question. Uh, let me start off with a particular case. Rabbi Chayun, who's a conservative rabbi, was arrested not because he was conservative. And in fact, I'll share with your listeners that I went back and forth at the New York Times whether even to mention he was a conservative rabbi. Because he wasn't arrested because he was conservative. He was arrested because he performed a wedding outside of the rabbinate. Now, someone could argue, and there is an argument to be made, that halachically speaking, one may not perform a wedding outside the rabbinate without the approval of the chief rabbis, because they are what we'd call an orthodox thinking, the Moradasra of Israel. Right. One could argue that. I disagree with that position. The chief rabbis were elected through a political process, through political give and take. And because of that, they have a certain authority within the government, but they certainly don't represent the values of, or, of the entire halachic community. And as such, it seems to me a travesty that someone should not be able to perform a wedding outside of the uh, confines of the rabbinate, especially if couples choose to go that direction. Now, in my ideal sense, I'd want everybody to get married through the rabbinate. And I hope your listeners will quote me saying that. Because if the rabbinate was sensitive enough to the issues that people face, then there would be no need for rabbis to perform weddings outside the rabbinate. But today, that's a reality. It's a reality, and we need to address that. And it's a great example of someone performing a halachic wedding. Halachic wedding. 100% according to the halacha, that was, you know, and got arrested for that. In fact, had he performed a non-halachic wedding, they wouldn't have been able to arrest him because the the law states that you, to get arrested, you have to, or to violate the law, you have to perform a halachic wedding. In other words, the problem so was that it was a example. halachic wedding. It's a, it was a halachic wedding. Otherwise, the law doesn't allow them and does, doesn't enable them to arrest a rabbi. The law says they have to perform a wedding, Kedat Moshev Yisrael. If they do that outside the rabbinate, then they're then they, subject to a two-year jail term. So I say when I present it like that, which is the, which are the dry facts, you can check it in any, in any legal book in this country. So then you can see the state of Israel is not pursuing a halachic point of view. They're pursuing a political point of view. Now, again, there are certain halachic considerations that are behind such a, such a you know, uh, uh, the legislation that was passed. But it's an outrage. There's no reason for it. Well, how about other situations? So in one you... area, but again, I want to come back to your question because you asked me, what are my lines? I have a very simple mission, and E-Team's mission is to make Israel a place that's respectful and responsive to the Jewish needs of the Jewish people. Now, I believe that the halachic system, as was taught to me by my teachers, and I inherited from my family. I believe that halachic system is a system that can be respectful and responsive to the Jewish needs of the Jewish people. I don't believe we have to go looking for other denominations, etc. We don't need to go there. But in the present system, the way halacha, the problem is not with halacha, the problem is the way it's being practiced. The way it's being practiced, particularly by the religious establishment in Israel. So that's what has to change. Should we be able to create more diversity within the religious system so that people had choices? I don't think this question would, I think the question would be moot. I don't think the question would be relevant. So what I want to do is pursue an agenda. And this is what I wrote about in the Times. 
that makes Israel respectful and responsive. Israel isn't living up yet to not only the vision of its founders, but also the vision of the prophets, which is really what we're, we're about here in, in Medina Israel. So right? we have to be a place that's so, that, that, that makes people want to feel great about being Jewish. So you're saying that, in your opinion, if your ideal world, your ideal Israel could exist, there still would be a chief rabbit. In other words, you're not like some people who want to simply Absolutely. dismantle it. Absolutely. I am not about destruction. I'm about building. I'm about building a stronger Israel. I'm about building a stronger Jewish life in Israel. I think if you gave me the choice today, would we be better off without it or with it? I think it would be a real deliberation, but it's not my, I don't have a button. It's, it's not a binary thing. People look for simple solutions. This is a complex issue that we need years and lots of thinking to go into it to figure out what exactly Jewish life is going to look like for the next millennium. What I can tell you that we're doing at E-Team is case by case and topic by topic, we're trying to shape the future of what Eretz Yisrael and Medinat Yisrael uh, provides for the Jewish people. And we're doing that. We're doing it in mikvah, we're doing it in burial, we're doing it in marriage, we're doing it in divorce. We're doing it in one of the most sensitive issues that I wrote about in the Times article, the issue of Jewishness certification. Right. We're trying to change the way things work. Someone can come along and argue, and this is the rabbinate's position, that unless someone can provide four generations of documentation that they're Jewish, then, they're, then, then we're going to question their Judaism. I would argue that that is antithetical to the, what it says in the Shulchan Aruch. The Shulchan Aruch says very clearly, the, the basic corpus of Jewish law says, that we trust Jews to say that they're Jewish. We don't need to start looking. And there was a debate in the medieval period, and, we, and, and the Shulchan Aruch clearly made a decision, made a decision that obligates people halachically. So when you ask me, is the rabbinate reflecting that decision? I would say today, the rabbinate is the one who's, who's completely changing the rules of the game. And they've, they're adopting an isolationist position that has no place, not within the state of Israel, and no place within the corpus of halacha. That halacha was decided 500 years ago. Why are we revisiting it now? So, but, for example, something you're very involved in, I know as well, is Giyur Kalacha, which is Israel's largest non-governmental conversion program. And I know you wrote an article, I believe it was in the Times of Israel about a year ago, where you advocated doing a pre-Bar and Bat Mitzvah Giyur conversion for people who are not Jewish, but who want to be part of the Jewish people. And right now they're having a very difficult time, these same people, being accepted as converts by the chief rabbinate. So for you, things like this are a fulfillment of halacha, not trying to find leniencies, but rather trying to make it better for people while upholding the letter of the law. Is that a fair statement? That is absolutely the case. I understand the chief rabbi's position. I understand that it's part of the halachic corpus that the chief rabbis believe that you cannot convert children unless their moms convert. I understand that. I get it. In this country, we have a problem. Hundreds of thousands of immigrants from the former Soviet Union, the people we, the North American Jewish community and the Israeli Jewish community, helped, you know, free by bringing down the Berlin Wall and helping, the, you know, we were part of that, and helping free Soviet Jewry. Hundreds of thousands of them came to Israel who are not halachically Jewish, and now they have kids, and the women who have kids, their kids are not halachically Jewish, and they're growing up in a Jewish milieu, and they're, they're Israelis, and they're serving in the army, etc. The chief rabbinist's position is we cannot convert them without converting their moms. But there are major, major halachic authorities. Uh, we are relying on the Psakdin, the most recent Psakdin of Rav Nachman Rabinovich, who was the Rosh Hashiva of the Malay Adumim Yeshiva, 
who believe not only can you convert the, the children, particularly the immigrants in the former Soviet Union, without their mothers, but you must. It's actually an obligation to do so because the, the, the greater dangers that face us down the road of intermarriage, assimilation, etc., are so endemic that we, we need to solve this problem now. And Rav Rabinovich himself has performed conversions for Gior Kalacha so that we can start addressing this problem in a frontal way and in a meaningful way. So we're not trying to be missionaries. We're not trying to change the way, you know, people, you know, convince people to convert. We're saying people who were growing up Jewish and kids, boys and girls, who are growing up in Jewish milieu and going to Jewish schools and are part of Shabbat and Purim and Hanukkah and Pesach, etc., they should have an opportunity to be completely halachically Jewish. The Rabbanut now does not accept our conversions, but we're working very hard to make sure they will. Because, again, if you take one singular view of halacha, then there's very little you can do. But if you if you understand that there are multiple halachic approaches to this, then you uh, certainly should be accepting the converts of Gior Kalacha. And I'm sure our listeners understand as well that when you talk about multiple halachic approaches, obviously that is not some sort of deviation from the way Torah was classically understood. In general, there always have been multiple approaches, and that's been part of... There's always been fighting. There's always been fighting. And there's going to continue to be fighting. But there's always been a certain respect for the other side, and that doesn't exist today. Today, there's simply a dismissal of everybody who isn't exactly like the religious establishment. And that's a, that's a, there are victims of their own power, in my opinion. That want, has to change. I want to ask you something about the article that you wrote for the New York Times. The article you wrote came out on August 1st. It's entitled, Fighting for Judaism in the Jewish State. It's subtitled, I am an Orthodox rabbi dedicating my life to breaking the ultra-Orthodox monopoly over Jewish life in Israel. And I recommend highly to all of our listeners to, to get that piece and read it. It's very, very important and very, very well written and interesting. I heard a complaint, which I'd like to ask you about. One person I heard said, it's one thing for us to go and air our problems in the Jewish community. And certainly this podcast is all about that, saying we can't hide things, we can't bury our heads in the sand. More than that, we have to publicize and let people know about problems that we have by pretending they don't exist, we're only fooling ourselves. However, this person was saying that may be true, and an article like this should be written in the forward or tablet or some Jewish type of magazine or publication. By publicizing it in the New York Times, are you possibly giving more ammunition to people who want to find things to dislike about Israel and essentially airing dirty laundry beyond circles where it's necessary to air it among people who aren't going to go one way or the other, aren't going to fix it one way or the other? It's one thing to say it among Jews, but why would you want to tell the non-Jewish world about our problems in Israel? Those who are looking to uh, disagree with Israel, I assure you they read the foreword. I assure you they read Haaretz. There's no question about that. The opportunity to raise something on an international forum is an opportunity to bring it to the attention, not of the world, or not only of the world, but also to the attention of the policymakers in Israel. And that is something that we shouldn't take lightly. Policymakers in Israel, unfortunately, in my opinion, do not take the Jewish issue seriously enough. They don't understand what's happening in the diaspora. And the opportunity to bring it to their attention in a very, very meaningful way, I think, is something that we shouldn't take lightly. But like I said, it's very simple to uh, blame the messenger, but I don't see the people who are blaming me going ahead and blaming the rabbit and saying, hey, there's some real issues you guys have to deal with. So I think there's a certain sense, we need a certain sense of moral clarity to be able to say, 
we're comfortable with what, what has to happen. We know what has to happen. And we have to change what's happening now so that uh, the future of the Jewish people looks much more brighter than it does right now. We're almost out of time, Rabbi Farber. I want to ask you just two more things. First of all, what challenges do you see on the horizon for Jewry in Israel? What sort of things are coming up and we're going to have to deal with, which we may not be so cognizant of now? For example, in the early 90s, the massive Soviet aliyah led to the issues of Gyor Kalachad you mentioned a moment ago. What things are coming up in the future, in your opinion? Look, the biggest thing that's facing us today is really percolating under the surface, and that's the question of who is a Jew. It's a question that's come up uh, over and over again, but today it's really a front and center here. Because people aren't focusing on this issue, the definition of who is a Jew is becoming much more radicalized, and that it has the potential to disenfranchise not thousands or tens of thousands, millions of Jews around the world. Meaning the state of Israel might end up adopting a definition of Judaism that will turn the number of Jews around the world who can feel comfortable being Jewish in Israel from 15 million to like 5 million. And it's a demographic problem because people who believe in the Zionist enterprise should want Israel to be a state that welcomes all Jews. And by accident, or maybe on purpose, the religious establishment is simply dismissing, because they don't understand what's really going on in the, in, the, in the Jewish world, it's dismissing millions and millions of Jews. Jews who anybody who's halachic would consider fully Jewish. And I think that is the biggest, the biggest challenge that's facing the Jewish people today. And because it's so, it's dormant, it's quiet, it's not happening, there's a revolution going on that's simply going to wipe out millions of Jews in a, in, you know, with a signature. And that's a real... That's a real challenge for us, and we're working very, very hard to make sure that doesn't happen. And actually, what you said now leads to my last question, which is, you talked about Israel being the place which should be known to welcome all Jews. So how would you, as an Orthodox rabbi, trying to work within a halachic framework, also make people from outside of Israel who are non-Orthodox, how would you make them feel comfortable so that this can be a place which, on the one hand, as you say, you want the rabbinate to function properly, but at the same time, without disenfranchising Jews who come from different backgrounds, like a conservative or reform background? Look, first of all, I think that Judaism and halachic Judaism has a place for reform and conservative Jews as well. I think they should feel comfortable. And people who don't identify as Jewish at all should still feel comfortable in Israel. I think Birthright has done a great job at making people feel comfortable in this country, but Birthright is a good example of a lot of the people who come through would never, ever be able to get married here in Israel. We need to come up with ways in which they can get married. So I want people, again, for an individual, each individual case, I can come up with an, an answer. But on the, on the whole, I think we need to be striving towards a place that's respectful and responsive. Sometimes the answer can be net, but it has to be respectful for who they are. Unfortunately, today, over and over again, you'll hear members of the religious establishment either saying this or not responding when someone else says it, you know, it's not negative and someone else says it, they're not really Jewish. They're not really part of the Jewish people. That's just wrong. It's wrong halachically, and it's wrong tactically. So I think we need to make people feel that they're totally, totally welcome here. And we need to open up the doors as much as possible for the reform and conservative and the non-affiliated movements, etc. People need to feel comfortable here. If we have to create alternatives for them, we should be able to do that. But most importantly is we should try to come up with a, a, a way of providing religious services in Israel 
that will make people feel uh, empowered. And, you know, uh, I, respected. I, I did tell you that that was my last question, but I do have one final follow up question for you, which is some of a lot of what you've been saying today has been the large numbers of Israelis who may not be identified with the religious or Orthodox community, but at the same time, as you say, a high, high percentage want to get married with a rabbi, and even higher percentage would say Kaddish for a parent. Do you think that the term Orthodox, as it's understood now in Israel, is going to become anachronistic at some point, such that there are simply different gradations of levels of religiosity? Or do you think that the idea of various divisions is here to stay? So, you know, a team... It's a nonprofit. I'm not a prophet myself, so I have no idea what's going to be in the future. <laughs> I think that uh, the whole notion of these denominations is a historic aberration. As a historian, I say that uh, it's an aberration. I don't think we will have movements in another 500 years. I think it'll look something different, but I can't say exactly what it's going to look like. So we can uh, hope for the best and more more than hope. I think a lot of people hope for the best, but I'm working very hard to make sure that the best parts of our tradition uh, are not, uh, we don't turn our backs on them, and the opposite, we're, we're able to uh, incorporate them into the future of the Jewish people. Rabbi Farber, thank you very, very much for speaking with me today on the Orthodox thank Conundrum. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me on the Orthodox Conundrum here on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the world's fastest-growing Jewish-English language podcast network. Please make sure to listen to some of our other great podcast series. Among them, we have the Maimonides Minute, Now Learning Hilchot Shuva, The Laws of Repentance, in anticipation of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. We've just passed 20,000 listens. Make sure to listen to that. We have Holy Madness. We have Baseball Rabbi coming out every Thursday. We have David Zeev in Israel. We have Intimate Judaism, Real Relationships, Chochmat Nashim, Cup of Salvation, and much more. Make sure you go to our Facebook page and like it and follow us. And also, please follow us on Twitter at JewishCoffeeH. Once again, I'm Scott Kahn for the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com.